Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank uh, each of our three outstanding witnesses for being here and um, look forward to not only your comments, but certainly the questions that will come. Um, this is the fifth in a series of hearings and briefings that we've had to evaluate the joint comprehensive plan of action between Iran and the P5 plus one. Over the past two weeks, we've received testimony from the administration and private witnesses with regards to the strengths and weaknesses of the deal. We've also heard from sanctions experts about consequences of the fast-paced and very generous sanctions relief provided to Iran under the agreement. And today with you, thankfully, um, we're going to have the opportunity to hear from experts on the capabilities of the inspections regime included in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the constraints the agreement will or will not, as the case may be, effectively place on future advancements towards nuclear weapons by the Iranians, and the overall implications of the deal for U.S. and global nonproliferation objectives. Um, yesterday we had a classified briefing that ranking member and I were just talking about it, uh, relative to our capabilities to verify the agreement. Um, this committee and Congress are uh, about a month away from having to decide if this deal is better than no deal. Um, obviously, uh, in order to cast this vote responsibly, we have to answer the fundamental question, does this deal achieve our key objective of keeping Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon rendering the U.S. and our allies and partners more secure from Iranian coercion and aggression. Um, I'm concerned about the leverage we've given up, but uh, like others here, want to continue to, to understand whether we achieve that goal or not. In addition to addressing those aspects of this agreement, I hope our witnesses today will also provide their expert opinions on the following questions. What precedent does the Iran deal set for proliferation of enrichment technologies in regions of particular concern to the international community? What role will the eventual repeal of the conventional arms and ballistic missile embargoes play in launching regional competition for advanced military systems? What examples from recent WMD history suggest that this deal does not include the strongest possible inspections and monitor monitoring uh, regime possible. Do you believe a better deal remains possible if the United States rejects the current deal? Obviously a big question. And what are the risks? If you are recommending a course of action to Congress, what would you recommend and how would you support that recommendation? So we thank you all. Uh, we have tremendous respect for all of you. I know you have differing views on this topic, which is what's helpful to us. And with that, I'll turn over to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Martin. Well, first, uh, Chairman Corker, thank you very much for your leadership in the way that our committee has moved forward during this review period. Uh, we're only in day 16. We've still got uh, many more days left, 44 more days left before the, the clock runs on the 60-day review. And as you pointed out, this is our fifth uh, hearing or briefing that we've had. Uh, this is our third public uh, briefing. The, f the, the first... Uh, public hearing dealt with the overall uh, part of the JCPOA and understanding and a review as to how it works collectively. The second uh, dealt with the sanctions and how the sanction regime operated. Today we're looking more at the constraints on Iran's nuclear programs and the inspection and verification regime. And we have three 
true experts, and we thank all three of you for joining us today. You're all very familiar with our committee, and we're very familiar with you, and this is going to be, I think, a, a great discussion. So Dr. Seymour, Ambassador Joseph, and Mr. Albright, thank you for, for being available uh, and being here today. Uh, Mr. Chairman, you, you said, laid it out correctly. I mean, our responsibility at the end of the day is to determine individual, as individual senators whether we think this agreement is in the best interest of our country and is, if we support it, makes it more likely Iran would not become a nuclear weapon power. If we oppose it, we think there's a better course. That's our objective. And it is a complex matter. Anyone who believes it's not a complex matter, I don't think has really studied it, and it is a it's not an easy yes or no answer. Uh, what I hope we will get into during today's uh, hearing is the fact that there are certain time differences in this agreement, but, but we are, uh, by this agreement, uh, providing for a legal enrichment program for Iran, and can they use that legal enrichment program to move forward on a covert program for a nuclear weapon? What does the MPT requirements and the additional protocols do after the time periods have elapsed? Is that strong enough to prevent uh, Iran, for, to allow us enough time to prevent Iran from breaking out to a nuclear weapon? Is the breakout time long enough? Does the IAEA have the capacity uh, and the ability uh, through this inspection regime and through the MPT and the additional protocols uh, to detect if Iran, in fact, is trying to break out to a nuclear weapon in time for the international community to take action. It's also, I think, important for us to understand the prior activities in Iran, particularly its weaponization programs and the PM, its possible military dimensions, and is the agreement strong enough, and is, IAE, is IAEA strong enough and have enough capacity in order to understand that. And then lastly, we need to remember that we are discussing today a non-proliferation agreement with a hostile but sovereign country. We need to judge this agreement on its own terms, not against an imagined agreement. What can we really accomplish? We need to determine if this agreement accomplishes what it purports to do in the long run, or are there loopholes, gaps, and areas of obscurity that undermine its implementation or enforcement. As was the case during the Cold War, it is possible that meaningful diplomacy combined with pressure under the right conditions can yield positive results for U.S. national security. I think everyone would like to see a diplomatic solution to the Iranian nuclear weapon program. The question before us is whether the nuclear constraints contained in this agreement and the inspection and verification regime that it sets up meet that standard. And Mr. Chairman, I'm looking forward to the discussion with our distinguished panel. Thank you very much, Senator Cardin. Um, our first witness is David Albright, founder and president of the Institute for Science and International Security. Our second witness today is Ambassador Robert Joseph, PhD, senior scholar at the National Institute for Public Policy and former Undersecretary, Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Our final witness is Dr. Gary Seymour, Executive Director for Research at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. Uh, we very much look forward to your testimony today and the questions that will follow. And if you'll just start in the order I introduced you, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and other esteemed members of, of the committee for the opportunity to testify today. 
Congress has a special responsibility and opportunity to evaluate the JCPOA. As senators think about how to evaluate a nuclear deal, their scrutiny should not only lead to an up or down vote of the agreement, but also result in legislation that enshrines and elaborates on its provisions and its implementation over time, clarifies key interpretations of its provisions, establishes important conditions, and creates a framework for effective implementation. Most of my testimony um, that I'm gonna cover is really highlighting what we have found as significant concerns in the agreement and steps we have recommended in order to anticipate or remediate these weaknesses. Um, I would also like to highlight that my organization and I are neutral on whether the JCPOE should be supported. We believe that at this time um, of intensive, highly charged debate about the merits of the agreement, our analysis is sounder if we avoid taking a position on the agreement. There remain significant doubts that Iran will address the IA's concerns about the, the possible military dimension of Iran's nuclear program before implementation day. Failing to do that will impact negatively the success of the agreement. As such, action should be taken now to clarify that U.S. policy requires that the IA's concerns about possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program must be addressed before sanctions are lifted on implementation day. I believe that Congress should thus declare and make binding in legislation that the lifting of U.S. sanctions requires the determination that the IA's PMD concerns are adequately addressed. The joint, the JCPOA's fundamental goal is to ensure that Iran's nuclear program is peaceful even after its major nuclear limitations ends. The, for 10 years, this agreement creates the conditions that any serious effort by Iran to build nuclear weapons will be time-consuming and will be vulnerable to detection. However, whether the deal meets the goal of preventing Iran from building nuclear weapons in the long term is doubtful. And this uncertainty poses one of the more fundamental challenges to the agreement. After year 10, and particularly after year 15, as limits on its nuclear program end, Iran could reemerge as a major nuclear threat. The agreement does not prohibit Iran from building a large uranium enrichment capability and even a reprocessing or plutonium separation capability. The agreement essentially delays the day when Iran reestablishes its nuclear weapons capability and possibly builds nuclear weapons. To head off that day, the United States and its E3 plus 3 partners should not accept or approve Iran's nuclear plans after year 10. 10 to 15 years from now, Iran will still have no reason to produce enriched uranium for civil purposes. The U.S. should state that an Iranian semi-commercial enrichment plant um, will be neither economic nor necessary and will be inconsistent with the intent of the JCPOA. The verification provisions in the agreement have weaknesses and some must be remediated or compensated for if the agreement is to be verifiable. As a general finding, the verification provisions with some remediation of their implementation are likely to be adequate during the first 10 to 15 years of the agreement, but they will be inadequate afterwards if Iran implements its plan to expand its centrifuge program and possibly start a reprocessing program. I should also note that the agreement does not contain an anytime, anywhere access, or particularly an anytime access provision. The JCPO does deliver on creating an access provision with consequences for noncompliance, and, and that is an important, important accomplishment. Where the JCPOA fails is on ensuring prompt access. A key criteria in the development of the, of the agreement is the time Iran needs to produce enough weapon-grade uranium for a nuclear weapon called breakout. The administration has used a 12-month breakout criteria in designing limits on Iran's centrifuge program. 
However, the agreed limits do not appear to guarantee a 12-month breakout timeline during the first 10 years of the agreement. If Iran can relatively quickly redeploy its already manufactured IR-2M centrifuges. Our preliminary calculations, which I want to emphasize preliminary, we got to this late in our assessments, and it's still ongoing, result in only a six to seven month breakout timeline, not a 12 month breakout timeline. And this redeployment issue of the IR2Ms and our preliminary assessment require clarification. In any case, the United States should ensure via additional negotiations if necessary that IR2M centrifuges are dismantled in a manner to make them more difficult, if not impossible, to deploy. The procurement channel created by the agreement requires special congressional attention, I believe. The success of the procurement channel to deter and thwart Iranian violations will rest fundamentally on the supplier states and their companies. There is much work to do to ensure the procurement channel is implemented effectively. The agreement provides only 30 days to reject a proposed export to Iran, which for many states is, is not enough time to review adequately whether the particular exports are legitimate. Even in the United States, that's gonna, that could very well be a challenge, in, in particularly when, when we're assess, or the U.S. is assessing whether goods could violate the intent of the, J, of the agreement. And Congress, uh, is certainly going to need to support the deployment of necessary resources to improve the executive branch's capabilities to rapidly review exports to Iran and ensure that they do not contribute to activities inconsistent with, with the agreement. Pending the development of an adequate review system, the U.S. should state that it will maintain a presumption of denial if it determines that 30 days are not sufficient to, sufficient to adequately review proposals. In conclusion, the agreement should be recognized as having numerous strengths. And, and my organization has, has produced studies showing those, and certainly the administration ha has, has provided uh, many of those. However, the agreement cannot be evaluated without a critical look at its provisions and with some thought on ways to mitigate its weaknesses. Thank you. Dr. Joseph. Good morning. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, other distinguished members, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. It's a privilege for me to provide my views and my recommendations. In my prepared statement, I identify what I call five fatal flaws of the nuclear agreement with Iran. Ineffective verification that will not detect or deter cheating at suspect sites, such as at military facilities that Iran's supreme leader has declared to be off limits to inspectors. Recognizing and legitimizing Iran's path to nuclear weapons, both through uranium enrichment and in 15 years through reprocessing of plutonium. Busting the sanctions regime and thereby abandoning our most important leverage to ensure Iran's compliance with the terms of the agreement. Failing to prevent breakout in a meaningful way, both after the constraints are lifted and in the interim when Iran may decide to race to a bomb. And failing to limit Iran's ballistic missile force, including its ICBM program that makes sense only in the context of a nuclear front end. I also identify four strategic consequences. First, the likelihood of more nuclear and missile proliferation in the Gulf and the broader Middle East. Second, undermining the international non-proliferation regime by setting very damaging precedents on verification and undercutting the authorities of the IAEA. Third, enabling, with hundreds of billions of dollars over time, a more aggressive and repressive Iranian regime. And fourth, increasing not decreasing the prospects for conflict and war. 
Given the profound national security implications that stem from these consequences, I believe that this is a historic moment. And at this moment, I don't think one can overstate the importance of the congressional review and action on this agreement. And here I would make four recommendations. First, Congress should vote on the agreement and reject it if you decide that it is a bad agreement. I think the metrics to judge good from bad are straightforward. Is the agreement verifiable? Does the agreement deny Iran a nuclear weapons capability? Does the agreement following the expiration of constraints placed on Iran prevent Tehran from building a nuclear weapon in a short period of time? And is there meaningful phased relief of sanctions and are there guaranteed snapback provisions? Because the answer in my assessment to each of these questions is no, it's important for Congress to reject the agreement and insist on a return to the negotiating table to seek an outcome that meets longstanding U.S. goals. Second, Congress should, to the extent that it can with congressionally imposed sanctions, tie incremental relief to the fulfillment of Iran's commitments. Third, if the agreement moves forward, Congress should make clear that any cheating will result in its immediate termination. Unfortunately, it appears that the Obama administration may seek to explain away non-compliant behavior as it has reportedly done with Iran's failure to meet its obligations under the Joint Plan of Action. For this reason, Congress should establish a Team B of outside, nonpartisan experts with access to the highest levels of intelligence to assess Iran's compliance with all provisions of the agreement. And fourth, Congress should move forward with funding to expand missile defense in the region and against the emerging Iranian ICBM-class missile threat. To conclude, I know that you have heard the arguments that, despite its flaws, Congress should go along with the agreement because it is the best that we can do, or because it's better than no agreement, or because if we walk away from the deal, we are choosing war. Based on my personal experience over many years, none of these assertions holds up. We can do better, as we demonstrated with Libya, where we demanded and received anywhere, anytime access to all sites, and where we removed the program by sending over a large ship, which we loaded up with hundreds of metric tons of nuclear equipment and with their longer-range missiles, and then we sa sailed it back home. While Libya is not Iran, there are a number of lessons that apply to Iran that I would be pleased to talk about if you like. Let me just say that with Iran, we violated every rule of good negotiating practice. We gave up our leverage at the, outside, at the outset by, by uh, relieving sanctions to keep Iran at the table. We consistently signaled that we were desperate for an agreement. We allowed ourselves to be squeezed for concession after concession as Iran manipulated arbitrary deadline after arbitrary deadline. And most important, instead of holding the line on key issues whose outcome would determine whether it is a good or bad agreement, we made concession after concession. As for the assertion that this deal is better than no deal, well, that is a question for Congress to answer. I would just refer you to the statements repeatedly made by the President and Secretary of State that no deal is better than a bad deal. As for the notion that it's a choice between this agreement and war, this is simply a false choice. 
It's hyperbole brought to you by the same individuals that predicted, in fact, they committed to achieving in the agreement constraints on Iran's ballistic missiles, anywhere, anytime access to sites, to people, and to documentation, and getting to the bottom of the military activities, including the design of a nuclear warhead that Iran is suspected of conducting. This track record of predictions couldn't be worse. There is no certainty that we can get a good agreement. There are no risk-free alternatives, but the costs and risks of accepting this bad agreement far outweigh the alternative of going back to the negotiating table. Iran will criticize us, as it does every day in its vitriol against the great Satan. Russia and China will criticize us as they continue their respective aggressions in Ukraine and the South China Sea. Even some of our allies will criticize us if we insist on reopening negotiations. But others will cheer us, like Israel and our Arab partners, that know Iran a lot better than we do. And with American leadership, combined with close consultations and sound positions on the issues, I am confident that we can turn this around, just as we have at other critical junctures in the past when our national security demanded it. Thank you very much for your consideration. Thank you, sir. Dr. Seymour. Thank you, Chairman Corker and, um, and Ranking Member Cardin. I appreciate this opportunity to brief the committee on a new report, which the Belfer Center has just produced this morning, um, and uh, we've placed it at your uh, table. I'd like to request that it be put into the record. Thank you, sir. Um, now, this report was produced by the Belfer team of nuclear experts. The intent is to try to provide a comprehensive description of the agreement and to evaluate its strengths and weaknesses including issues on which the Belfer team disagrees, most importantly, whether or not Congress should approve or reject this agreement. With respect to the agreement itself, we have three main conclusions. First, if the agreement is implemented, it will effectively prevent Iran from producing fissile material at nuclear weapons, for nuclear weapons at its declared nuclear facilities for at least 10 to 15 years. That assessment is based on both the physical limits uh, on Iran's nuclear capacity at Iraq and Fordow and Esfahan, as well as the inspection and monitoring regime at declared facilities, which will quickly detect any significant cheating or breakout. The reason for the 10 to 15 year range in our estimate is because the Belfer team disagreed on how to characterize the expansion of Iran's enrichment capacity in years 11 to 15 in the agreement. As you know, Iran is then, begin, is then allowed to begin replacing the IR-1 centrifuges with more advanced centrifuges. And the plan for that uh, expansion and replacement is not public, so that leaves uh, room for disagreement among the experts. Some of our experts thought that at year 15, breakout time would be about what it is today, a couple of months. Other experts thought that if the Iranians can make these more advanced centrifuges work properly, breakout time at year 15 could be down to a couple of weeks. And that's just an unknown and disagreement in our report. But all of our experts agreed that in any event, Iran is very unlikely to take the risk of trying to break out at its declared facilities because that would be detected very quickly and there would be time for the US and other countries to take action to prevent breakout from happening. So in other words, this agreement blocks Iran from producing fissile material for nuclear weapons for 10 to 15 years at its declared facilities.
That means that if Iran is going to produce nuclear weapons in the next 15 years, they'll have to do it at secret facilities to produce fissile material. And this leads to the second major conclusion of the report. The verification and the compliance measures in this agreement, along with continuing U.S. and allied intelligence efforts, are likely to detect any Iranian effort to build secret facilities to produce fissile material. And of course, the agreement has provisions to reimpose UN sanctions in the event of a major violation. At the same time, the report concludes that intelligence and inspections under the JCPOA are less likely to deter or to detect incremental cheating or secret activities not involving nuclear material, such as certain areas of nuclear weapons research or centrifuge research. So you can never say with complete confidence that the secret pathway is cut off, but the agreement makes it more difficult for Iran to conceal um, efforts to build secret facilities to produce nuclear material and makes an international response in the form of uh, sanctions more certain. The one area of verification that the Belfer contributors most disputed was the significance of the IAEA's investigation into Iran's previous uh, military activities, so-called PMD. Some of the Belfer experts felt that full resolution of PMD was essential to establish a baseline for future monitoring of, um, of, um, uh, of Iran's nuclear program, while others felt that the U.S. and U.S. allies already have sufficient information from intelligence so that we don't need to have a full settlement of the PMD issue. The third point, and I think the one that's most difficult to assess and predict, is what happens after 15 years when the physical constraints on Iran's nuclear program and most of the special monitoring provisions expire. Supporters of the agreement think it will create conditions, it could create conditions to reduce Iran's incentives to develop nuclear weapons over time while opponents think that it could legitimize Iran's nuclear weapons option. At that point, 15 years from now, Iran would be able within a matter of years to build a large enrichment facility, large enough to provide low enriched uranium fuel for its nuclear power program, and such a large-scale enrichment program could create more credible options for both nuclear breakout and for concealing secret facilities. Uh, Iran could even claim it needs to produce highly enriched uranium for civil purposes. As Secretary Moniz has testified before this committee, the U.S. could object if Iran takes steps that we consider to be inconsistent with the civil program, but whether we could rally international support at that point is very unclear. It's obviously hard to make predictions about things that could be happening 15 years from now. So that takes me to the final issue, the overall judgment about this agreement compared to alternatives. Obviously, the agreement is better than no deal because it constrains Iran's nuclear program and imposes additional monitoring. But just as obviously, the deal could be better. It could have tighter physical constraints, could have stronger inspections, could have longer duration. And on this issue, the Belfer team was deeply divided between those who thought we should accept the current deal with its known strengths and weaknesses, or whether we should take the risk of rejecting this deal and, and attempting to, to uh, try to negotiate a better deal. And frankly, we don't have an answer to that question, which is the fundamental question Congress faces, but we've at least tried to lay out the arguments to frame the debate. Thank you very much. I look forward to responding to your questions. 
Well, we thank you all. You're all very well respected, and um, obviously, if you listen to the testimony, that's what uh, is going to make this decision a tough one for for many. Uh, there are a lot of different views. I'm not going to use uh, most of my questioning time, but I am going to ask one question. I make one point, I guess, to to David Albright. You mentioned that we should not uh, agree to the beyond 10 years, but you understand we've already agreed to that, right? I'm sorry, I mean, not agreed. I don't know if you've seen all the documents that we have seen, but you understand we've already agreed to Iran's industrialization of their program beyond 10 years. Yeah, that's I, I that's guess part of the agreement now. The way we've read it yeah. is that that's not an agreement, that it's, it's, it's in the sense that it, it doesn't object and prohibit it, but that it could... It, it's not approving it. And so the U.S. could turn around and say that it's, it, it, it does not approve of it. And, 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 and to be honest, I've heard from administration officials similar language. So I think it, it, it can be worked with yeah. um, and, and basically uh, argued that, that U.S. position would be that if Iran builds a large enrichment program, a semi I would say semi-commercial one, that has no need is on economic, that that would be inconsistent with, with the agreement. I don't think there's anybody on this panel that would agree with you hmm. up here. I mean, I think that most of us have read the documents down in the skiff. I don't think there's anybody that doesn't believe that the United States has agreed to the industrialization of their nuclear program. Now, what they're going to do with it is something that people may disagree on, but I don't think there's any disagreement just for what it's worth among all of the folks sitting up here that, in essence, we have agreed to the industrialization of their program. So let me, one of the areas that yesterday came up in our classified meeting, and I thought was a very good meeting, is the procurement channel issue. Um, I think most of us have thought, if you listen to Wendy Sherman and others, that we've got a really tight grip on the procurement channel. But I think what we realized yesterday is that uh, that that is not true, that the way the procurement channel works, um, that the exporter, and we know that there are plenty of illicit exporters. We know that there are AQCon-type folks in China. We've had hearings to that effect that are shipping these goods to Iran and other places. But it requires them to report that they are exporting illicit goods to Iran. There's no reporting on the other end. And I just find that to be a phenomenal gap in this. And to me, creates tremendous opportunities for illicit issues to be dealt with. And if you look at the confidence levels of our, our intelligence community and their feelings about their ability to, to actually intercept that, uh, I would just say that it gives me a tremendous pause. I don't know if you want to uh, yeah, no, add I to think that it, or take no, away. I, I think, the, and we were involved in, in designing the model of a procurement channel last summer and um, working with the administration and other countries and, uh, on what it should be. And I think it, it does fall short of what's needed. I mean, again, you never can get the ideal case, but it... But there's some real issues that, that have to be compensated for if this deal goes forward. And, and you mentioned some. And uh, the, the end use verification isn't adequate. The IA doesn't have the, uh, certainly doesn't have a mandate. I mean, it's going to have to seize one um, to try to exert itself to look for, um, for 
in a sense, to check the end use and to look for suspicious imports? Because you, you, you're worried both about covert activity, that it could be uh, efforts to procure for a covert nuclear program, but it could also be an effort to, to stockpile so that these goods could be used in surging uh, if they decide to renounce the deal. And so I, I think there's quite a bit of work. And, the, and I think some thought has to be put into how do you compensate for that. And I think the, um, and, and part of that is going to rely on the United States being able to, to assess much more. So we're good. I'm going to move on so I can interject okay. uh, as we move along to our ranking member. Thank you very much. And I look forward to all of you. Uh, once again, thank you all for your testimony. Uh, so much of this depends upon the IAEA, and uh, the Director General will be here tomorrow. It will be in a closed setting, so we will not have the public opportunity to hear. But I will just ask you, what questions should we be asking of the Director General? We are very concerned that they have the capacity and the expertise that they need. We're very concerned that they have the access, um, including intelligence information, in order to make these judgments. We're very concerned about the prior military dimension and whether they'll be able to give us an accurate assessment of what happened previously. So if you were in our position, what questions should we be asking the Director General? Dr. Seymour? Yes, sir. I mean, I think there are two important issues. The first is whether the IAEA has sufficient uh, resources, expertise, equipment, and support in order to do its main job which is to monitor the declared facilities. That's their bread and butter. The IAEA is never going to be uh, capable of detecting secret facilities the same way that intelligence agencies are. So they're going to have to depend very heavily on support from the US and other countries in order to carry out that part of the mission. But in terms of the declared facilities, that's where their real expertise is. And we want to be sure they have the competence to do that. The second issue, it seems to me, is really PMD. I mean, Amano has made a decision to reach an agreement with the Iranians on a list of steps which he expects them to take in order to resolve concerns about uh, PMD and to allow the agency to issue a final report um, that will close out that issue. And I think it's worth asking him what he expects from the Iranians in terms of their cooperation. My guess is that we will not see full cooperation from Iran. They may allow technical exchanges and access to facilities and so forth, but I think it's very unlikely we'll see Iran genuinely cooperate to acknowledge the weapons activities they were That's taking That's an issue I want to get back to, but Mr. Albright, let me just get your assessment. Um, yeah, couple, one thing, one is, is that and you wouldn't be the first to do that, is, is to ask that the IA simply rule in December in their report that Iran has a, had a nuclear weapons program and parts may have continued, that they, they make a positive judgment that, that is in line with, with most countries' assessments of what happened. And I think, and then to make a judgment whether Iran has cooperated by providing access. Do you think we'll be able to get adequate information to connect the dots on, in the past? There's been concern as to how much we do know about their weaponization program and their military uh, nuclear program. Do you think uh, that the IAEA will have enough access uh, to be able to make those assessments? And this leads somewhat to the roadmap and the, uh, the annexes that we have not seen yet. They're not public. 
Uh, but it, what is your confidence level? Well, one is is that their their November 2011 report more or less said that it that the evidence that they have is that there was a. a a bomb program in the past and parts may have continued. What they argue is that it's not their information, it's member state information. And I think uh, the Director General should be pressed of why they can't use member state information, why they need their own, because frankly, who expects them, even if they get access to Parcheen uh, or some of the other sites they've asked to get to, that suddenly they're gonna find out new information about past efforts on Iranian nuclear weapons. So Ambassador Joseph, let me ask you, how important is the PMD? How important is it for us to know what happened in the past, for us to be able to judge what's going on in the future? And what's your confidence level that the IAEA will get to the truth? Sir, I think that's one of the most important questions before all of us in terms of assessing this agreement. I think it's absolutely vital that we understand how far along Iran was in terms of the PMD, the development of a nuclear weapons capability. And these, as the IAEA report of a November uh, 2011 points out, these activities could continue, or at least some of these could continue to the present. So I think it's vital if we don't understand how far along they, you know, they are, there's really no way of assessing this baseline for breakout. And your confidence level of the IAEA getting to the truth? Well, my confidence level is very low. I mean, why, and this would be a question for, for uh, Mr. Amano, why is today any different than the past four years? Iran has been stonewalling on each of these activities for four years. Why does the, uh, what the, does the IAEA think that they're going to have clarification and resolution by December of this year? There's just no reason for that optimism. Let me take you 15 years, 10 to 15 years down the road, Dr. Seymour. And when we're operating, everything's gone. As far as we know, is, is, is they've complied with the agreement. How confident are you are? How, how confident are you that being a, a non-proliferation signer of an MPT and having uh, committed to the advanced protocols, how confident are you that the IAEA will be able to determine in adequate time if Iran decides at that point to break out to a nuclear weapon? Well, if Iran has a very large-scale enrichment facility, then that would, uh, at least in theory, give, the, give them the ability to break out very quickly, perhaps before the IAEA could even um, alert the international community. Even more likely is that uh, I think Iran would try to build secret enrichment facilities nested underneath or inside of a much larger program because they would have thousands of technicians and a, a, you know, facilities for producing centrifuges and so forth, and they might try to divert uh, some of that equipment and uh, personnel to build a secret facilities. I've always thought that was the much greater threat because breaking out from declared facilities is very risky. Of course, the, they're required to notify of other facilities, but they could violate that. So exactly. are you saying basically that your confidence level at the declared sites is pretty high, but outside of the declared sites uh, that IAEA, absent direct information, intelligence information, that it'd be very difficult for them to be able to track what's going on in Iran? I'm saying after 15 years, our confidence level will have to decline. I mean, if, you know, if Iran decides to build large-scale enrichment facilities, then we're going to have less confidence. That doesn't mean that we won't know. We might still be able to detect 
an effort by Iran to build secret facilities. In some respects, that's independent of the IAEA inspections. I mean, we and others have a national intelligence capability which is not fundamentally dependent on inspections. We uncovered both Natanz and Fordow without there being any special inspection mechanism in place. So that would, would I think that would continue. Best, uh, Mr. Albright, your microphone. If, if the program is large, they're making 20% enriched uranium, they could simply, they could do simple things to, to, dis, to make it so the IE doesn't actually know what's going on for, it could just be a matter of days or a few weeks. Yeah, again, people will be suspicious, but they can just prevent access, they can turn off the cameras, they can do all kinds of things, and, and, and in that time, perhaps make enough weapon-grade uranium for a couple nuclear weapons. Ambassador so Joseph, that's And so that's why you worry about a large program. Ambassador Joseph, I understand it. You, one of your major concerns is the time limits, that once those time limits evaporate, that there isn't very much protection here for discovery? Yes, sir, that's, that's correct. I, I agree with Dr. Seymour. I, I think the most likely route for sneak out uh, is with secret facilities. Uh, and the agreement that's before you is particularly weak in terms of the provisions with regard to inspections at, at uh, suspect sites. But I also, I also wouldn't rule out a breakout scenario at declared facilities. I think we'll have high confidence that they're breaking out, so we'll be able to detect that. But remember, North Korea broke out. North Korea kicked out the inspectors and began reprocessing plutonium. And what did we do? So the question then will become, well, how do we respond to a breakout if they choose that route, which is open to them? Uh, it's a political decision that, uh, that they can make. Thank you. Before I turn to Senator Flake, I, on the PMD issue, I think um, I, I had a very good conversation with Secretary Kerry before we finalized those, and to me, the PMD piece was an indication to me of how vigilant we were actually going to be. And as I read the PMD agreement, and I don't think there's any dispute on this, and we can certainly talk to, to Mr. Romano tomorrow and will, but it doesn't matter whether Iran becomes clean or not, whether they give a D-minus report or an A-plus report. The only thing that is required for sanctions relief is that there be a conversation and that the IAEA issue a report. But it doesn't matter relative to whether they come clean or not. And to me, it just signaled the P5s, P5 plus one's lack of desire to really make sure that this agreement was stringent. And that's what was so depressing to me when I saw the qualitative pieces of that, plus the anytime, anywhere inspections, plus the lifting of the conventional arms embargo, plus the lifting of the ballistic arms embargo, plus, unbelievably, lifting immediately the ballistic missile testing ban. But with that, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the testimony. Mr. Albright, you talked in your um, uh, testimony about uh, the need to pass legislation to clarify a lot of these aspects of the agreement. If this were a treaty, uh, those would be called RUDs, um, and we would be able to clarify exactly what is, is meant, our reservations, our understandings, mm. uh, declarations. We don't have that ability formally here, but w what form should that legislation take, and what would the timing be, in your view? 
Well, I think it, it certainly our motivation is from arms control and, and ratification of arms control treaties. I mean, that's, that's the model we're using. But we don't see any, anything that would ban Congress doing that in the case of an executive agreement, particularly one of this importance. Now, the timing, I think it, I don't see a time limit on this. I don't see the 60-day clock affecting this. So I think it, again, I, I'm not experienced enough to know whether you know, it should be done in parallel to a resolution on a vote or a, a bill on a vote. Should it be done sequentially? But I think it's, it's certainly there is a, a need to do it long before implementation day because I also think it could have um, very positive pressure on the Iranians. Some did to deal with just what Senator Corker said. I mean, in my discussions with the administration, they claimed to me that Iran has to address the PMD issues, and I, I, but I understand the skepticism, and I share it, but Congress could, in legislation, require that to be addressed before U.S. sanctions come off. So I think that Congress has, has leverage, and, and I think that it can make a much stronger deal um, if, let's say, Congress does vote to, a, to approve it. There is one area where there seems to be conflict. Or I'm sorry, votes not to disprove it. Yeah, let me. Um. Thank you. Uh, there, there does seem to be disagreement or at least uh, something that requires clarification that uh, many of us have, have tried to address with the administration, and that has to do with the imposition of sanctions for non-nuclear activities. If Iran uh, were to engage in, in conduct unbecoming, which would not be a break from the past, um, and we were to impose, say, sanctions on their central bank in response to this activity, not the nuclear activity, but this activity, the administration seems to say that all of those tools remain in our toolbox, but the agreement says otherwise, as, as, as I read it and as many of us read it. Mr. Seymour, you're not in your head. Can you speak to that? And is that something that could be clarified in some type of accompanying legislation or legislation passed after this is implemented? I think this is an area of disagreement in the agreement. We assert that we have the right to impose sanctions on Iranian individuals and entities for reasons other than nuclear proliferation activity, counterterrorism, human rights, and so forth, and that we'll go ahead and do that as necessary. The Iranians assert that if we reimpose all the sanctions that we just lifted for nuclear reasons under the guise of some other pretext, they'll consider that to be a violation of the agreement. And so I think in implementation, that will be one of the tensions. We will undoubtedly find reason to impose sanctions for other reasons, perhaps even on the same individuals or entities that we've actually you know, de-designated. And the Iranians will complain. They'll say this is inconsistent with our understanding of the agreement. At some point, that may lead the agreement to collapse. But that's one of those disagreements that are structurally embedded in the agreement. Is, does that behoove us to, uh, to, to uh, that disagreement or misunderstanding or whatever we want to call it now? Well, I mean, does it, yeah. it, it fall to us to try to clarify that? Well, Congress can certainly support what the administration asserts, which is that we're free to impose sanctions for other reasons. And we I mean, should codify that, or in statute at least? Uh, that, uh, would that be useful in your view? I mean, you're, you know, you're the legislator. I don't know whether you do that in statute or sense of Congress, but it seems to me that's you know, clearly what the administration claims, so Congress would simply be supporting uh, what the administration's interpretation is. And I'm sure the modulus, when it, it's their turn to you know, vote in the agreement, they will assert that any reimposition of sanctions is a violation of the agreement. Right. 
turning to the, uh, the period of time uh, 10 years out and beyond, um, Iran, a lot of the restrictions are lifted. They can uh, enrich uranium only to a certain percentage. They're subject to the NPT. What examples do we have elsewhere in the world where countries have uh, become a nuclear threshold state and have remained there? And does this give us confidence or should it worry us about uh, where we're going from here? Ambassador Joseph, you want to address that first? Well, certainly North Korea went to the brink of being capable of acquiring nuclear weapons through uh, its uh, uh, plutonium reactor in Yongbyon and the reprocessing of the spent fuel to provide for the fissile uh, material for, for weapons. Uh, it also, of course, uh, embarked on uh, the enriched uranium route, uh, again, covertly. Uh, when North Korea decided uh, that it wanted to demonstrate a nuclear weapon with a nuclear test, it did so. Uh, it did so at the time of its choosing. The same is true with regard to India and Pakistan. Uh, and I would point out that with regard to North Korea, with regard to India, with regard to Pakistan, we did not have good intelligence that gave us an indication that they were going to go from having this capability to actually demonstrating this capability and weaponization. So I think there are a number of, uh, uh, of cases in which you find countries going to that level and then crossing the line. Uh, there are other countries that, of course, could become nuclear weapon states uh, in, in a very short period of time because they possess, uh, you know, in some cases, uh, lots of plutonium, uh, weapons-grade plutonium, and the capability for fashioning uh, a nuclear device. Dr. Seymour. So, you know, I agree with uh, Bob that it's really, there are plenty of countries that have, not plenty, but there are some countries that have advanced civil nuclear programs that involve production and possession of fissile material. I mean, Japan is the best example. But it's really a question of the country's motivation. I mean, we have some confidence that the Japanese are not, you know, likely to pursue nuclear weapons because uh, they have a you know, relatively transparent democratic system. They're treaty allies with us, so we believe that we are able to address their security concerns. None of that applies with Iran. So the concern is that if Iran had the same kind of threshold capacity that Japan has, there would be fewer political constraints on them actually producing nuclear weapons. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your testimony. Uh, Dr. Samuel, let me ask you, if in fact the administration and the P5 plus 1 had not been able to strike an agreement with Iran, would we be at war with Iran right now? I don't think so. I think the Iranians have been very, very careful in pursuing their nuclear program in a way that they are hoping will avoid military action. If you look at the last decade of their program, when they first broke the agreement uh, with the Europeans in 2005, and they they have proceeded in a very cautious way. Uh, and of course, both President Bush and President Obama have decided not to take, to not to use military force as long as the Iranian program right. was proceeding gradually. So if in fact uh, the Congress felt that this deal did not rise to the sufficient level for the national interest and security of the United States and rejected it, it would not necessarily mean we'd be at war with Iran. I agree. It would not necessarily mean we'd be at war with Iran. I Pastor. think they would resume their nuclear program, but they would continue to be cautious about avoiding things that could trigger a military strike. Ambassador Joseph, you already said that, but I just, is that basically your view? 
Yes, Senator, it, it is. I, I don't believe Iran wants a conventional war with the United States. The problem with this agreement is that it will shift the balance of power toward Iran. It will make Iran more capable and, in my view, more aggressive externally and more repressive domestically. So we have had three witnesses, uh, two who support the agreement uh, before the committee, uh, one who opposes it, and all of them have said it is not a choice between this and war, because I want to get that over with. I find that insulting, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, Mr. Albright, you're a physicist, right? You're, you've been a former weapons inspector as well, is that correct? So on, in May of this year, you wrote a commentary with another colleague saying, making Iran come clean about its nukes. And in it, you said, a prerequisite for any final agreement is for Iran to address nuclear weapons questions raised by inspectors of the International Atomic Energy Agency. If Iran is able to successfully evade questions about a weapons program now, when biting sanctions on oil exports and financial transactions are in place, why would address them later when sanctions are lifted? You went on to say, it is critical to know whether the Islamic Republic had a nuclear weapons program in the past, how far the work on warheads advanced and whether it continues. Without clear answers to these questions, outsiders will be unable to determine how fast the Iranian regime could construct either a crude nuclear test device or a deliverable weapon if it chose to renege on its agreement. You also went on to say the discussions have focused exclusively, this is before the agreement, on uranium enrichment and plutonium production capabilities. This is a mistake. Yes, Iran's ability to produce fissile materials is of crucial importance, but the world wouldn't be concerned if Tehran had never conducted activities aimed at building a nuclear weapon. And a final point that I want to point out in your commentary, because then I want to ask you a question or two about it. You say, if, if, Iran, if Iran can get away with these things, it will have defeated a central tenant of IAEA inspections, the need to determine both the accuracy and completeness of a state's nuclear declaration. Other countries contemplating the clandestine development of nuclear weapons will certainly watch Tehran closely. Has anything changed in your views from the commentaries you wrote back in May? No, no, I think it, I, I think I may state some of it differently. I mean, I think one of the issue, risk is it, is the IA credibility. I mean, it is the verification entity, and if, in a sense, Iran gets away with it on PMD, then the IA's credibility is damaged. So this is not simply about getting culpability from Iran. No, not it at is, all. It is, because the world largely believes it's culpable, otherwise we wouldn't have slapped uh, UN sanctions and a whole mm. host of other things. The issue is to determine as best as we can from both access to the site, its inspectors, documents, and other things, to determine how far along in the weaponization they got. That's right. Now, let me ask you uh, something. I, I was a little stunned, and of course you cautioned that it's not a final assessment, but when you said uh, preliminary assessments, and I, I'm gonna paraphrase, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that the breakout time, that the agreement doesn't seem to accomplish a one-year breakout, that it may be between six and seven months. At what point in time will you be able to, with the certainty, uh, since you caution that it's a preliminary estimate, be able to make that determination? Well, it, we're working on it. I mean, it, you know, it, we have you to. You think it'll be before September 17th? Definitely. Yeah, no, and, and we'd like to get an administration response. I mean, it, we asked them uh, last week, 
um, for for a response on on this concern. I mean, we didn't give him the number, um, but it's in the testimony. But it's it. We have a difference with the administration sometimes on the breakout estimates, in the sense that they often have taken a position that if it, Iran hasn't done it, then it won't do it. And and I don't want to go into the technical details of this in the breakout estimates. Um, one of the questions I have is the administration assuming that since Iran hasn't enriched in the IR2Ms at the fuel enrichment plan, in the sense of there's a thousand deployed and they haven't enriched, is it that Iran will not choose to deploy those IR2Ms if they did break out? Where in our assessment, we're looking at it, well, they're their best machines in terms of output and that they would have, and they've been testing one cascade of them for several years at the pilot plant, that they would then deploy those first. Mm -hmm. And what we found in the calculation last week, essentially, was that has a much bigger impact than I think we anticipated uh, three weeks ago. And that would be concerning to me, because if I already am a little concerned that what we bought here was a very expensive alarm system, where we've added nine months to the three months that we have, and some other elements but haven't largely gotten significant parts of their infrastructure to be dismantled. I'm not suggesting all of it would be dismantled, though I'd like to see that. But if it's six or seven months, and you have to presume every possible option, right, because you're, you're in part dealing on hope here, although hope, I think, is a bad national security strategy. Uh, six or seven months, that's not going to be helpful uh, if they decide to break out because by the time we reimpose sanctions or snap back, and that would be my final question, uh, it would be meaningful. The next president of the United States, depending upon when that happens, will only, only have one choice, to accept Iran as a nuclear weapons state or to strike, have a military strike, because sanctions will be ineffective. So let me ask the last question, Ambassador Joseph. Uh, I've been trying to get the administration, Senator Flake has been very focused on non-nuclear related sanctions. I am concerned that if you're gonna snap back to something, to the extent that that is still a significant deterrent, you have to snap back to, for example, the congressionally mandated sanctions that I think have largely been viewed as a key driver to bring Iran to the table. They expire next year. If, in fact, you don't reauthorize them, then I'm not quite sure what you're snapping back to as a deterrent. It, isn't it important to have those uh, sanctions reauthorized and the sooner rather than later? Sir, I think it's very important. Uh, Iran needs to know that there are consequences uh, if, it, uh, if it violates the agreement. And I'm very concerned that we'll be in a situation where if we reimpose sanctions, it'll mean the end of this agreement. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I just think that we have, for all practical, practical purposes, busted the sanctions regime and given up our leverage. To the degree that we can reestablish that, I would be 100% in favor. But it's going, to be, it's going to be very tough. But that's the situation we're in today. My, my time has expired. I see that Dr. Samer wants to say something. You know, just very quickly, Senator, I don't think reimposition of sanctions is an effective response to breakout. I think the only effective response to breakout is military force. I mean, if the Iranians have decided to run the risk of openly dashing for a nuclear weapon, I don't think sanctions are going to deter them or stop them. So it seems to me that 
if Iran makes a political decision to move forward because it believes it's the preservation of the regime, the revolution, or its place in the, hemis in the region, then ultimately, uh, if that's, if that's uh, a, a view that is the one that would prevail, then we are just kicking the ball down the road. But we will have a stronger resurgent Iran with more money and greater defense capabilities than it has today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I don't know who to direct this to, so I'll direct it to all three of you, and you can volunteer who takes it first. We all know that Iran is a pretty big player and state sponsor of cyber espionage. We also know the IAEA is trying to comfort us that its capabilities are remote in terms of monitoring the Iranians. If they're remote, they're cyber-based. If they're cyber-based and if Iran is a major player in cyber espionage, do you think the IAEA is capable of defending itself from being penetrated by the Iranians during the course of this agreement. Uh, do you want to go over? Well, I, I can. I can say one thing. I mean, I, I think you. I'm not sure the eye is safe from being penetrated by any nation. So I, I, I think you have to factor that in. And so, if you look at the particular issue you're raising on on what could be remote monitoring, and, and again, at declared sites um, where you would have video surveillance. Um, of certain locations that you will have to work with trusted member states on, on proper encryption. You also have to go there and check. You'll have to go, you know, you'll have to just, the IA will have to decide how often does it have to go to assure itself that, that, that the system can't be tampered with. No other volunteers? Right. Senator, it's a great question. I wish I could answer it. I think that's a good thing to point out to Amano because I think, I as David said, tomorrow I was just this was a warm yeah. up. Because <laughs> no, no, it's, I think it's a great question, and I'm sure. I mean, the IAEA has their own computer experts and department, but I'm sure that they could, uh, you know, benefit from assistance in terms well, of given developing the study that you've done, and we appreciate you providing us with the Belcher Group study. Do you think a detected cyber espionage breach by the Iranians would be a material breach in the agreement? Yes, I think anything that interferes with the monitoring of the IAEA, whether it's physically denying access or denying electronic access, would be a violation of the agreement, absolutely. Dr. Joseph, uh, go ahead, yes. I, I, was, I was just going to, to add another thought, and that is we all know that Iran is a master of denial and deception. I believe that they are very capable in the cyber area. It, it may be that the IAEA won't know when they're penetrated. They won't even know that. Uh, because of the capability that Iran has, uh, has in, that, uh, in that area. Which is why the comfort they try to give us that they have the remote capability lessens in its importance when you worry about the inspection regimen and the agreement otherwise. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, no, I, I think on the remote, you can check that. Because in the end, it, it's to make, it, it's to save resources. Because they could send someone who just lives there. But it's, it, it's not a very wise use of resources, just like the daily inspections now aren't particularly a wise use of resources, although they may look good politically. So I think you, on that particular issue, you can, you, you can deal with it. I mean, the, the broader issue brought up by Ambassador Joseph is, is more profound. I mean, if, I mean we're going to have to, from a U.S. point of view, understand that the IA is penetrated. And what does that mean? And, and again, I don't know how you ask Director General Amano about that, but, it, but it's, um, I think we have to anticipate that Iran 
has penetrated the IEA? I think it's an appropriate question to ask Mr. Amon. Yeah. Dr. Joseph, I appreciate your answer, all of your answer really to Senator Menendez on the false choice of this agreement or war. And I thought all your responses were good, and I do think it's a false, false choice. In your response, Admiral jo Ambassador Joseph, you made the following statement. You said none of the assertions really against this agreement hold up about this being an, an agreement or war, and our best lesson is the lesson we learned in Libya. Would you expound on what lesson was learned in Libya? Libya? Senator, I uh, have the privilege of leading the negotiations with Libya on Libya's nuclear program in 2003. In those negotiations, which were conducted in secret, we insisted on anywhere, anytime access, and they provided that. When we said we wanted to go to a facility, they took us there. In fact, they took us to undeclared facilities that we didn't even know about, because the Libyans had made the strategic decision to give up the program. And in terms of the resolution, as I mentioned, we brought the nuclear program of Libya back to the United States along with its longer range missiles. Now, I think we did that because we approached this with a strategy, a strategy that used economic sanctions, a strategy that used intelligence very, uh, very skillfully. In fact, I think this is first and foremost an intelligence success story, and a strategy that had at its core a credible, in the minds of the Libyans, a credible option for the use of force. We didn't, we didn't differentiate between diplomacy and the use of force, or diplomacy and economic sanctions. The key is to have a comprehensive approach that brings all of these tools together to achieve the outcome. And that is the furthest thing that we've done in our negotiations with Iran. We've turned this on its head. I recognize that Iran's not Libya and vice versa, but your implication in your answer was that if we rejected this deal and the resolution of disapproval, that you're, you, you, at least you implied to me, you think the Iranians would come back to the table? It's not a certainty, but I think the uh, damage that was being done to the Iranian economy brought them to the table in the first place. And if we start to reimpose sanctions, U.S. sanctions, secondary sanctions, particularly in the financial area, this is a brittle regime. This is a regime that is... Uh, you know, th that is at war with its own people. The reason they came back to the table was they did not want to, you know, to, you know, have their economy fuel even more domestic instability. This is, this is a regime that understands its own vulnerabilities. And I think for that reason, it will come back to the table. They'll bitch, they'll moan, as will, as will others if, you know, if, if we say no to this agreement. But I think ultimately, they will need to come back. They're the ones that need an agreement. We should insist on an agreement that achieves our national security interests, not those of Iran. Thanks to all of you for your time. Did you want to say something, Dr. Albright? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and really appreciate the testimony of the witnesses here today. Um, Dr. Seymour, I believe Ambassador Burns was part of your group. You talked about the group that, that um, uh, put together our, our, uh, our Iran nuclear deal definitive guide. We've been looking forward to that. So <laughs> that's, uh, 
that's good to have. He did very well last week, and I want to just remind everybody about a couple of things he said and then ask you some questions on that. Um, it, one of his points was, uh, uh, other than attempting to disapprove this along party lines, uh, he, he said, let's work with the president to strengthen Americans' position in the Middle East, move forward with a nuclear deal, push back against Iranian power in the region, a Congress that sought greater unity with the President Obama would help to strengthen our country for the struggles that are inevitably ahead with Iran in the years to come. Um, let's assume, and we've had a lot of debate here about you know, whether we're going to uh, move forward with this agreement or not. I personally believe we're, we're going to have this agreement, we're going to move forward. So let's assume that. What, um, what ideas do you have uh, to strengthen the President's hand as he attempts to enforce this agreement? As we move forward, what are the things that, that um, we should be looking at in terms of filling the holes and, and trying to do everything we can to make this a stronger agreement as we move down the line? Because as anybody knows, an agreement uh, is, is a living object and, and a, a living uh, presence and it moves along and you work through it. It isn't something that's just a, a, a matter of concrete and you have some very powerful parties that are a party to it. Please go ahead, Dr. Seymour. No, thank you, sir. Uh, if you accept the argument that this deal at least buys 15 years in terms of delaying Iran's nuclear capacity, I think the key question for us is how do we take advantage of those 15 years? both to contain Iranian aggression and influence in the region and to try to promote political change. Because at the end of the day, the only way to really resolve the nuclear issue is to have a government in Iran that has decided they don't want nuclear weapons. I don't think we have that now. That's why I'm skeptical about the likelihood of this agreement surviving 15 years. But if it does, if we do have some time, the important thing is our policy in the region our policy toward Iran, how we coordinate with our allies and our partners in the region after this agreement has been implemented. And I think that really falls primarily on the next administration. I mean, I think for President Obama, implementation of the agreement will suck up a lot of energy and time. We know that the Iranians have to take a long list of nuclear steps before sanctions are relieved. I think there are bound to be compliance issues early on, especially on procurement and other areas. So I think really it's the next administration, assuming that this agreement is implemented and doesn't collapse in its infancy, the next administration is gonna to have to focus on a broader strategy toward Iraq, Syria, uh, Yemen, and so forth, and how that relates to our broader efforts to contain Iran and to promote political change. Yeah, one of, one of the things you talked about was this regime uh, and the opposition to it, but the society as a whole is a very Western-looking society, is it not? Isn't there there's some very, you're talking about the regime, but is, aren't there some very hopeful things there in terms of where they're headed and where, uh, that we could take advantage of? I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very divided society, yeah. and, and, and I think there certainly are elements, younger, Western-educated elements that would probably uh, support the kinds of political change and evolution we would like to see. There's also a very strong you know, faction of hardliners, and I think it's very difficult for us to predict 
uh, how Iran will evolve as a political system over 10 to 15 years, and frankly, how this agreement will affect that. And one of the issues that we debated in this report uh, you know, between opponents and supporters is what that impact would be. And I, frankly, have come to the conclusion that we're just not smart enough to predict a decade out you know, what the, what the consequences yeah, are. Yeah, and that, that's, that's very important. Let, let me just uh, weigh in, as, as uh, Senator Isaacson and others have, on this war or no war issue. I mean, I, I think that, that's really a side issue that can be argued out. I think the critical issue here is, is with the parties that were involved. I mean, we had the P5 plus one, we had the Security Council, we had very, very smart countries with good uh, nuclear scientists looking at this and pushing to get the best deal possible. So what makes us think when we walk away from the deal and the other countries, none of them are going to disapprove it. They want the deal to go forward. What makes us think going alone we can get a better deal than this? So my best guess is that if we reject the agreement, it will lead to an erosion of the sanctions regime, but not a collapse. Because I don't think at the end of the day the Europeans would, would be prepared to go ahead with this agreement without us. But I think their enthusiasm for sanctions and for intensifying sanctions is not going to be very apparent. And I do worry about the Russians and the Chinese breaking ranks. So I think in the near term there would be a weakening of the sanctions regime. And I think the Iranians would take advantage of us walking away from the deal to resume their nuclear activities in a cautious way, as I said to Senator Menendez. I don't think they'll race for a bomb. So at least in the near term, I think we'll have a situation where the sanctions are weaker and the Iranians are advancing their nuclear program. Now, maybe that ultimately leads back to a negotiation. It could very well. But I'm not sure that we'll be in a stronger position at that point to force the Iranians to make fundamental concessions that they weren't prepared to make in this, in this negotiation. And I think that's the risk of walking away, is that, yes, we may have another negotiation, but it may not turn out with a better deal, or a fundamentally better deal. Please, go ahead, uh, Dr. One, one thing, I, I think you have to remember, the U.S. led these negotiations. I mean, I, I've spent all summer in Europe, and I've, I've spent a lot of time discussing this with various different negotiating teams. I think they had to accept things in many cases, duration. I, I don't think there was universal support for 24-day access provision. I mean, if you think about the IA sanctified 24-hour access, it was a huge negotiation in, an early, in the mid-90s to say, look, you want to know about undeclared activities? 24-hour access is the gold standard. So you can imagine some countries didn't like the 24 days. So I think you also have to keep that in mind. I'm not going to, I can't weigh in, I, you know, I tend to agree with Gary, but it, I think on that question, the U.S. was the leader of this, and if it went back and said, look, we got to do something differently, I think several of these partners are going to go along, and they, and they may even get behind some of these strengthening efforts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm Went over my time. Apologize. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you um, to the witnesses for your objectivity today. This is obviously terribly important. Um, Dr. Seymour, why, why does uh, the, the objective here on the Iranian side was to have a civil nuclear program? Why was it important in their minds to enrich, in your mind? 
Well, first of all, I don't think that's the objective of the Iranian nuclear program. I think the objective of the program is to create nuclear weapons, or at least an option to produce nuclear weapons. Thank you. So their claim to need so enrichment for civil start. is just a That was a, a false start to begin with. Correct. So then our, our position in, in the negotiation was to preclude them from becoming a nuclear weapon state um, forever. And so this, because the sun sets, I think we have two problems with this deal. Number one, we allow them to enrich, and we gave that away right up front. Um, Mr. Ambassador, I, I have a question, and, and let me lead into it here. Um, you mentioned in your comment something that, that sparked a nerve here, and I want to get to it. But it looks to me like I've read this document. This document obviously does not preclude Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state um, after some point in, at some point in time. Even Secretary Kerry last week said, you know, look, they can break out after 10 or 13 years, but we'll know it. My question is, so what? You mentioned North Korea had the same position. They broke out. What do we do? The administration says, yeah, but we're no worse off in 10 years than we are today, so why not give it a shot? Well, I, I disagree with that logic. In 10 years, Iran will be much stronger than today. The question I have for you is, given the fact that we have these two problems, with the fundamental problems with the deal, the fact that we're allowing them to enrich creates all this uproar about inspections, and the second is we sunsetted it in a very short period of time. So my question, uh, Mr. Ambassador, having been through this, uh, and we have two great examples in recent history, North Korea and Libya, are we better off today to take our chances even if we had to go it along, alone with, with our sanctions, which, by the way, I'm not afraid. I'm a business guy, and I know how sanctions work. They go at companies, not countries. Uh, I am quite confident that that will not break down entirely, if we, even if we had to go it alone. But are we better off today saying no to this deal, holding out for no enrichment, holding out for longer sunsets that will, in fact, preclude them from, come, from becoming a nuclear weapon state? Or is it better to take a chance and run the 10-year clock and take our best chances? Thank you, Senator. I think everyone has agreed, or at least they have used the talking point that no agreement is better than a bad agreement. This is a bad agreement. I think you're exactly right. Iran, in 10 years, will be stronger. Iran, Iran has a nuclear option today. It'll have it for the next 10 years, the next 15 years, and beyond that. If Iran decides to go for a nuclear weapon, it can have a nuclear weapon in a short period of time. Maybe we can push this off a few months. Yes, it's better that Iran has a, sl a smaller stockpile of enriched uranium to 3.67%, better than a larger stockpile, better, than, better to have 5,000 centrifuges running than 20,000 centrifuges. Those, those are all good things, but we can't forget the nuclear option is there for Iran if it decides to go down that path. And as for containment, that's. That's a great concept. It's a great concept. Well, we're going to start, you know, after this agreement to contain Iran. Okay, well, let me, let me say that. To me, there's a real disconnect there. We're going to give Iran access not just to the $150 billion sign, uh, signing bonus, but to hundreds of billions of dollars over the course of that 10 or 15 years. What are they going to do with this? Well, part of it will, I'm sure, improve their economy. But the Supreme Leader has made very clear that he's going to continue to support Assad in Syria. He's going to continue to support terrorism through Hezbollah and, and other sources. They're going to continue to support insurgencies within the region and fuel the Shia-Sunni uh, conflict. Iran is, Iran is a bad actor. We're giving them the capability. And by the way, they retain a nuclear option under this agreement. So yes, we can talk about containment, but we're feeding the beast here. 
Thank you. Um, yesterday we saw um, the Iran uh, ambassador to the IAEA make a comment. <clears throat> We've seen various saber rattling by the foreign minister, by the advisor to Supreme Leader. Um, on July 21st, um, Defense Minister uh, Brigadier General Hussein, I listen to the guys with stars on their shoulders. We will by no means allow any foreign authority access to our military and security secrets. I don't know how to even be any more direct than that. Uh, Mr. Albright, you've been involved in, in this before. How do you react to, to these comments that uh, obviously Iran is now saber rattling around what they won't do? They also said that they will not allow us to have access to these side agreements with the IAEA. I'm, I have a real problem with that, uh, particularly with some things that we've learned in the classified setting in the last 24 hours. Could you respond to, to that uh, issue yeah, about one is, I, I don't think you can have an agreement if Iran sticks to a position of no access to military sites. You can't distinguish between a military and civilian site when you're talking about nuclear matters, and, and the IA never has. Um, so I think that's, that's a given. Now, on, this, on the secrecy issue, Iran objects regularly. I mean, they've complained about my organization because we publish... Uh, what are essentially unclassified, to be publicly released safeguards reports by the IA. We publish them early uh, for various reasons. Um, so Iran takes a very strict position on secrecy. The IA doesn't have to. I mean, be, particularly because of the UN Security Council resolutions on this, the international interests, they can actually do quite a bit uh, legitimately to reveal things. I think they can reveal this deal that they have with Iran, or at least aspects of it. I don't think they're bound uh, in any way by safe, safeguards confidentiality to say no, no one can see what's in here. And, and because Iran is a special case, uh, and there's a lot of other um, political and institutional forces at play. And the background is Iran objects to everything. Every three months, it files what is essentially an obnoxious report complaining about the IA giving up uh, information about its nuclear program. And I want to emphasize a noxious report, and I don't say that easily. Um, and, they've, and they've certainly complained about us in that and, and many others. So I think, it, I think they have to be pushed back on this very hard, and, and the IA should be revealing much more rather than less. Well, we had that advice last week by some experts that said, look, if you go forward with this deal, you've got to enforce it in a very hard manner. Uh, so you're echoing that right now. Dr. Seymour, do you have one last comment? Yes, on the question of access to military sites, if you look at the agreement, there's no exclusion for military sites, although, although the agreement recognizes there needs to be managed access to protect uh, certain kinds of secrets. And as you said, some senior Iranian generals are saying, we'll never allow access to military sites. Who's right? We'll find out the first time the IAEA uh, requests access to a military site. If the Iranians reject it, the agreement will collapse. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Right. If we could, before we go to Senator Murphy, is it normal that, uh, especially in a, this is not a normal situation, I got it, Iran's not a normal country, but should we have access to the IAEA EA agreement uh, with Iran? I mean, that's a question we're going to be taking up tomorrow. I think you said yes, Mr. Albright, if I heard you. At least parts of it. I mean, to, to get a real honest rendition of what's in it that, that's right. relevant to the, the and, agreement. And did the other two of you have any thoughts on that before we have that meeting tomorrow? Yes, Senator. I think we sh certainly should have access. Otherwise, how do we understand how to assess what we know about 
the PMD issues and what we'll know about the inspection at Parchin where the IAEA uh, has suspected uh, illicit activities associated with the militarization aspect of the Iranian nuclear program. Gary? I think, actually, I think Congress should have access to the substance of the agreement, not the agreements themselves, and I, I'm hoping that Amano will, because he's the one who really has to brief you. I mean, he's the one who controls and possesses that information, so I'm hoping that in your hearing with, or your, your briefing with him, he will provide some additional details. Thank, thank you all. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, you know, I, I think underlying this whole deal um, are two premises that I think I heard both Ambassador Joseph and, and Dr. Seymour um, articulate. One is that if Iran decides to rush towards a nuclear weapon, there's no agreement that can stop them. Ultimately, they have a nuclear program that is advanced enough, thus that if they were to make that decision, uh, they can get to a nuclear weapon in a relatively short amount of time. And thus, as Dr. Seymour says, really the only effective deterrent in the grand scheme of things is a military option. And so that's what I read this agreement as being about, is about trying to lengthen the amount of time that we would have to detect that breakout, increase the likelihood that we would figure it out, and preserve an international coalition such that we could effectively wipe out their nuclear capability should they make the decision to get a weapon. And so I think you concede at the outset that there's never going to be an agreement that's going to be able to stop Iran from ultimately making the decision and starting along that path. You're only trying to make your military option um, more, 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 more likely and more lethal um, as part of this. Uh, and so you sort of have to make a decision at the outset whether or not you want an agreement or you don't, whether you're just confident to know that we continue to have a military deterrent that it is likely, as you've all said, to have an effect on the Iranians, um, or whether we want an agreement that uh, hopefully makes that military option more likely. Um, and so I, I want to sort of get back to this question of getting a better agreement. Um, and I think, Ambassador Joseph, you were maybe jumping to answer this question, so I, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to have, your, have your thoughts on this, right? Because I think that's what a lot of us are having trouble squaring, right? Because you're, if you reject this deal, your bar for how, or your standard of proof for how you think events are going to play out is actually pretty high. Is you've got to make a case not only that a set of events can play out that gets Iran back to the table, but you also have to play out a scenario in which the leverage is changed to an extent that they will agree to a deal that is tougher than the one they agreed to. And that's where I have a hard time figuring out uh, how that scenario plays out. I can get them back to the table, but I can't figure out how they come back to the table in a weaker position than they are today. Because almost everyone that's testified before this committee says that, well, the sanctions may not blow up, they're going to fray. Well, they won't race to a bomb, they're gonna to continue to build more centrifuges. Well, the United States' legitimacy around the world won't be um, catastrophically damaged, it'll be eroded. And so under those circumstances, it's hard for me to understand how we ultimately get to a better deal. I think we can get back to the table eventually, but I have a hard time figuring out how we get to a better deal. And, and um, I think you wanted to answer this question, Ambassador Joseph, and, tell, and then I'd love to hear a little bit more from Dr. Seymour about your skepticism and why you have skepticism about that. Senator, I think you've framed the question very well, and it's, a, it, it's an important question. I certainly agree with the premise that the leverage has changed. Uh, 
but I don't think it's irreparable. I think that over time we could establish effective, re-establish effective sanctions. I believe that there is an agreement that can stop Iran, that can deny Iran a nuclear weapons capability. That, that was the U.S. position for 10 years. That was the U.S. position that was reflected in multiple U.N. Security Council resolutions that demanded the complete suspension of all enrichment and reprocessing activities. I think we could get that agreement. It's going to be more difficult now than it was a year ago. So you don't accept it? my initial premise that this is, that this is really about trying to um, preserve an effective military option. You actually think there's an agreement that can wipe out their ability to get to a nuclear weapon. I think that there is a prospect for getting that agreement, okay? There are no guarantees in this business, but I can, I can say that my assessment is that this is a bad agreement. This is an agreement that, not, that does not stop them from having a nuclear weapons capability that they can exercise at any time of their choosing and have a nuclear weapon in a short period of time. And that has the various strategic consequences that I talk about in my prepared statement. I think fundamental negative strategic consequences. And there is this, there is this general concern about, well, if we walk away from this, what will others do? Well, I've been in the non-proliferation business a long time, and I was very much involved in exiting from the agreed framework once North Korea uh, was caught cheating with a covert enrichment program. And we had allies who said, well, you know, let's not get out of this agreement. Let's not do that because the freeze at Yongbyong on their plutonium reactor is worth continuing this. Well, when we got out of the agreement, after consultations with allies and, uh, you know, and, and improving their sort of understanding of the dynamics involved, uh, the sky didn't fall. The same is true with the ABM treaty and our withdrawal from the ABM treaty in, uh, in 2001. We had a number of allies who were very comfortable with the United States being very vulnerable to uh, missile attack against our homeland. They were very comfortable with that. But with the end of the Cold War, with the emergence of the North Korean missile and nuclear threat, and the Iranian threat now starting to emerge, it was essential that we have the capability to defend this nation, which I think everyone now agrees is a, you know, is, is, is a very positive capability uh, th that we have against uh, small-scale attacks. Dr. Samer. So I think, you know, this is where I disagree with my friend. I think the the likelihood of this government in Iran agreeing to a diplomatic uh, agreement that fundamentally um, you know, removes their capacity to produce nuclear weapons, dismantles their capabilities, has a very extended or indefinite duration, much more challenge, stronger challenge inspection regime, I, I just think that's extremely unlikely that we would be able to have the kind of economic leverage that would force them to accept such a disadvantageous agreement. The only scenario in which I could imagine us imposing on them that kind of agreement would be backed by a military ultimatum. And I don't think the U.S. is prepared to uh, issue that kind of ultimatum to Iran because the risk would be that they would reject it and we would then have to use military force. And just to confirm, you, you don't believe that there's a circumstance, at least in the short term, that gets us back to the table with a set of, of conditions that uh, prompts a better agreement? 
not in the short term. I mean, in the longer term, I can't tell. That really, you know, drifts into the next administration. But certainly in the rest of this administration, it's hard to imagine it's getting back to the table. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to focus for a few minutes on these secret agreements. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I'm being asked, as everybody is here, to uh, ratify and embrace this agreement that incorporates two agreements between Iran and the IAEA that we can't see. Now, you know, I've been around a long time, and in the history of jurisprudence in the United States, I have never heard of any party so foolish as to enter into an agreement with another party and accept and agree to two agreements with a third party that they haven't seen and that they, uh, the parties refuse to give them access to. Has anybody here ever heard of such a, a situation? Well, let me ask the three of you this. On something important in your life, building a home, buying a car, or something quite important in your life, would any of you sign a contract that accepts and incorporates and agrees to an agreement between the adverse party and a third party that they refuse to let you see? Would any of you three do that? Well, we're talking about probably the most important security matter facing the United States, our allies, uh, especially Israel, and the world, and this is what we're being asked to do. I mean, I don't know of a fool that would agree to an agreement that they can't read. Uh, we had the, we've had the, uh, the intelligence community in, and I've cross-examined them at length about this, and they've said, uh, uh, no, they haven't seen it, but they know what's in it. I said, how do you know what's in it? Do you know anyone who's seen that? who's read it, because in an agreement, every word, every comma, every period, every paragraph means something, and they said, well, no, but we've been told. I, I am just astonished, astonished that people are willing to buy on to this, particularly with the party that we're dealing here, uh, the, the party that's in, involved in this. Uh, I, I just, I can't believe people are, are willing to look the other way on this. Get, guys, give me your thoughts on this. Mr. Seymour, you're anxious to get involved. Well, I'm not you're, sure I'm anxious. You, you, want because, to make, uh, <laughs> you want to make a deal you haven't read, but tell me about it. So I t you know, I'd say two things. First of all, you'll have to satisfy yourself based on the briefings you get whether we have a reasonable understanding of the substance. And that, of can course... Can you do that with a contract that's word, that every word is important? How, how, can you how can you become comfortable saying with somebody else telling you this is what's in it and this is right. what it means? How can you get there? Well, of course, the U.S. government may have exactly that kind of specific information. I, I don't know, but that's what I, you'll I have to I can tell decide. you they do not unless you know someone who's, who, has, uh, who has that information. I don't. The second thing I would say, the more important issue, I think, is I think you have to weigh the importance of the IAEA-Iran document on PMD against the other elements of the agreement. Is that if, all it's about, is PMD? Yes. Well, how do the, you know that? Once we're talking how, about How do you know that? I'm confident of that. But you can ask Amano. Well, I mean, how, it is right, a roadmap. I want to get to your level of confidence. Right. Tell me how you're confident of that. I'm confident of that because if you look at the public document, the roadmap document that, um, that, you know, that Amano signed with Salehi, it makes reference to 
two confidential documents that spell out the steps Iran is supposed to take to resolve but, PMD. But we don't know what's in there. I, I mean, yes, that, that's in there. Is there something else in there? there you don't know if there's other things I in there. I think you'll have a chance to ask Amano tomorrow. But anyway, the more important point I want to get across is you have to weigh how important resolution of PMD is against the other elements of the agreement. And if you think PMD is so important that we shouldn't accept an agreement unless that's fully resolved, then you should reject the agreement. Mr. Seymour, set aside the PMD thing. Okay, we can argue about the PMD question, but first we got to know that that's all it refers to. And I'm not satisfied to have an Iranian tell me that that's all that it refers to. I got to see it, I got to handle it, and I got to read right. it. Then I'll know what it refers to. Right. So, you know, I, the PMD issue, yeah, we can talk about that and probably come down on different sides of it. But what I'm scared to death of is we get down the road, somebody opens a closet, and out falls the language of a secret agreement and say, ha! <laughs> you really screwed up. You trusted us. Right. Mr. Joseph. Senator, I, I share your concern, your frustration, and I would point out that uh, the members of the Majlis, the Iranian parliament, will have access to this, to this uh, set of secret agreements. I don't know. I don't know how. Amazing. I don't. I don't know how how, how you amazing. sort of weigh the issues. How 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 you could determine to go forward if you don't know what's in good this set of agreements. Good I, I, point about the Iranian Parliament being in a better position. We are, Mr. Albright. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, again, I, the IA sharing documents gets a little tough. I mean, you know, one of the hopes I would have is is that that it'll leak. Um, and then we'll all get to see it. Well, but your know, problem but, is you don't know. The, you don't know the leak is is uh, you're getting legitimate well, language. Yeah, maybe, and and I agree. Um, I would say one thing though: this needs to be circumscribed in some way. With I would argue with legislation the, of of language and legislation that because most of these conditions in the deal have to do with things that have to be played out over the next several months. It's not, they, my understanding is they're not conditions that come into play a year from now. And so, again, I understand your concern that there may be something hidden in there. And, and, I, and I, I certainly share that concern. But I think the bottom line, though, is, is that if, if it's, we're talking about access to Parcheen and, and who's going to take the samples, that has to play out pretty quickly if there is going to, uh, even under the, Thank the you limited conditions. Appreciate that. One last question. Um, you know, I, everybody here, and I heard it said by some of the senators, oh, we can enter into this agreement. No big deal. Look, the military option is still on the table. We're in no worse condition. Is there any one of you who would disagree with me when I say that every hour of uh, every day, every minute, the Iranians are in a better military position to defend what they've got than what they are at this moment. Anybody disagree with that? No, and can I add one thing? I, I think it's really a sign of a bad agreement if the only thing you can argue is we can use a military option 10, 15 years from now. I mean, let's be honest. What military option was exercised against North Korea in 2003 when it decided to go for nuclear weapons? I mean, I remember war games at the time. You know, I can remember war games you know, with the government officials, you know, prior to their nuclear test in 2006. 
I mean, we're going to do all kinds of things to North Korea, would be the consensus. Great, great point. But nothing happened. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So just two, two footnotes. One, one on North Korea. I was working in the White House at the time, working proliferation, non-proliferation issues, and there was no consideration that I'm aware of at all about using force when North Korea decided to move toward a nuclear weapons capability. There was no consideration of that. Second, in terms of what may or may not be in these secret agreements, my sense is that if these agreements did provide for a real way forward on PMD and on Parchin, you'd see them. They'd be on the table. You'd see them. Uh, why, you know, after four years of stonewalling on these issues by Iran, we, for whatever reason, could think that these are going to be resolved by a couple of side agreements and they're going to resolve, be, be resolved by mid-December? My view is that that's just sheer fantasy. Dr. Seymour. Just to say very quickly, I think the U.S. military option against North Korea was always very limited uh, because of the balance of military power on the peninsula and in particular the vulnerability of Seoul to a counterattack. In the case of Iran, not that I'm you know, proposing a military strike, but we have a lot more military advantages and tremendous superiority. So I don't accept your argument that in the next 10 or 15 years, you know, the Iranians will be relatively better able to protect themselves than we are to attack them. I think that's to be seen. I mean, that's in our hands to some extent. Briefly follow up. You mean to tell me if they deploy the SA-200 and the S-300s from Russia, that that isn't going to be a game changer for their ability to protect their facilities? Well, I mean, you should talk to military professionals, but I think Already we believe, have. thank you. I mean, I think we believe we have ways of uh, countering those capabilities. Senator Markham. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, and it is clear that we have a very checkered history in this whole area of the IAEA and the use to which it has been placed. So again, back in 1981, the Israelis bombed the Osirak reactor uh, outside of Baghdad. It destroyed it. It was a clandestine nuclear weapons program. And Ronald Reagan had Gene Kirkpatrick vote to condemn uh, the Israelis in the United Nations. Uh, but again, the Israelis were teaching us a big lesson that the IAEA is essentially, at that point in time, nothing more than a paper tiger. It wasn't effective. It wasn't getting the access that it wanted. And uh, the Reagan administration was ignoring that. And within a couple of years, they were actually aligning with Iraq and Saddam against the Iranians in the Iran-Iraq war. So, that's a checkered history right there. And then we move up to um, Libya, and, uh, and we kind of promise Gaddafi, if you cooperate with the IAEA, if you cooperate with us, no problem, you get peace. But there was rejoicing all over America when we saw these pictures of, um, of Gaddafi being killed because he didn't have a nuclear weapon. Thank you, Mr. Joseph, for that negotiation, but the, your actions did not then lead to the United States kind of dealing with the essence of that deal we were in once we knew he did not have a nuclear weapon. Same thing was true in Iraq. Uh, in Iraq, the IAEA was in. The IAEA was saying to George Bush, they don't have a nuclear weapon. There is no 
threat in the form of a mushroom cloud coming our way. We cannot find it, Mr. Bush. We cannot find it, Mr. Rumsfeld. We cannot find it, find it, Mr. Cheney. Please don't start this war. Give us more time to go through every site, but we cannot find it. And nuclear programs are huge programs. It's not like a biological or chemical program. These are huge programs. And George Bush just started this war. A lot of our problems right now, even this deal, relates to what happened back there in 2003. We disrespected the IAE, or the Bush administration disrespected the IAEA. It undermined its credibility. Okay. So both in 81 with Reagan, 2003 with Bush, both times they were, uh, they were basically not dealing with the essence of the role which the IAEA has to play. They're the referee. They're the group that has to come in and make a determination as to whether or not there is, in fact, an active nuclear weapons program in place. And we have to determine whether or not they are gaining the access that is necessary to do so. That's the essence of this whole debate. Whether or not we're going to repeat history uh, or we're going to create new history that turns the IAEA into the watchdog, not the lapdog. It turns out in 2003, it was a watchdog. It was accurate. Our inspectors were able to gain access, and the Bush administration just ignored it and decided to start a, nuclear, a, 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 a conventional war because they knew he did not have a nuclear weapon. We would not have invaded if he had a nuclear weapons program. That's the irony, of course, in Libya. That's the irony in, uh, in Iraq. And we don't invade North Korea because they do have nuclear weapons. All of that is not lost on Iran. That's what complicates this. Iran is saying they don't want a nuclear weapons program. Now, we know that they had a nuclear weapons program historically. We know that they are now negotiating with us to put the program under safeguards. We think for the known sites, this system is sufficient in order to be able to uh, detect in a timely fashion uh, any uh, activities that could lead to a nuclear weapon. We know all that. The question will turn then on their intentions with regard to a secret program and their intentions in the long term. And I would say, honestly, if you're the Iranians, you really don't want to run the risk of the United States and the P5 uh, plus one all agreeing that a, new, that a conventional a military attack on their nuclear facilities is in fact justified. At any point in time, you wouldn't want to match what you have in Iran against the combined forces of the P5 plus one if they really wanted to go in. That's a big question. That's a dirty Harry, do I feel lucky question uh, if they move in that direction. Okay, so I guess what I would say to you, um, Mr. Same, Dr. Seymour, is how do you feel about the 2030s, uh, the, the, the 2020s and the 2030s? Because everyone's going to have an opinion on it. I would like to just hear your, your opinion. Do you think it's likely that they are going to comply or not with this agreement? You know, that is really a great question. I mean, I think that there's a reasonable chance that they will cheat or renege on this agreement in the course of the next 15 years. And in some ways, I think that's a good scenario for us 
because I think if they cheat, there's a very good chance we'll catch them if it involves a major mm -hmm. violation. And that would put us in a very strong position to reimpose sanctions, mm -hmm. or if necessary, use military force. And if they renege, I have confidence, of course, there'll be a lot of finger pointing yeah. who's, at, who's at fault. I have confidence in the capability of the United States to rally our allies and others in order to resume a pressure campaign against Iran. So for me, kind of the easy scenario is that the Iranians have agreed to long-term constraints on paper, but that after a year or two that will fade and this agreement will collapse and we're back where we were. That doesn't bother yeah. me. Can you imagine a scenario where a president of the United States would not feel compelled to take the necessary action in order to ensure that Iran did not have a nuclear weapon in I'm, the 2020s? I mean, I think it is such an American interest to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And of course, that's been our policy since the Reagan administration. And that's when I first started working on mm -hmm. the Iran nuclear issue. I think that's a very enduring part of US foreign policy. And any president will have that as an objective. Can I disagree? In, 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 I just need a second. Uh, in, so I guess what I would say, Mr. Chairman, going back to Jimmy Carter selling you know, uranium to the Indians, knowing the Pakistanis were going to ramp up their nuclear weapons program in 1980 uh, uh, through the Osirak raid, uh, through the vertical arms race of the US and USSR, where we were never going to use nuclear weapons against each other, but this horizontal proliferation continued, uh, ignored, unfortunately, by both of our countries and the rest of the world, all the way up to today. We kind of now have the moment where we have to decide if this IAEA, in its present form, with the mandate it's receiving, under the leadership of Amano, is capable of doing this job. That's the test, uh, and I thank all of the witnesses for being here today, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for, um, for holding this hearing. Do you object if they respond to what you just said? If I, if I have to stay in here, then I'm going to miss the next meeting, and I well, apologize I'll listen, to the I'll listen and if, tell if you, you what they said. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, gentlemen, if you will, briefly. And yeah, could I, I, let me just give a historical example. In 2003, the United States knew Iran had a structured nuclear weapons program um, and didn't strike militarily. It was even being exposed by the IA. And that was the Bush administration. They did not. Yeah, I well, and so that's who else would? In other words, no. The point I'm making here is that we knew that Saddam Hussein did not have a nuclear weapons program, and we invaded them. And what was that signal sent to Iran by the Bush administration? Get a nuke, and look, be more like uh, North Korea or other countries, and we won't invade okay. you. So I'm not, when, I'm not disagreeing when, with you. What's your point? I'm just making a different point. Is is yeah. that that don't count on a military strike. 10 or 15 years ago. You're saying if George Bush wouldn't strike, then it's unlikely that a future president would strike. That's right. Strike. I don't Is think you can saying? count on it at all. Yeah, and, but and, uh, again, this situation's all created back then because if we had determined- I, if we could, I agree though, with that. If I, we I had determined that Iraq, that Iraq did not have a nuclear weapon, and then we moved the whole coalition to surround Iran in 2003 and say, give up your nuke, and we're not going to invade, we wouldn't even be here today. But yeah, Bush decided to violate this kind of trust with the IAEA, and now Iran took the wrong message from it. Yes, sir. If y'all could be brief, that'd be. I'll try. Let, let me say, irony notwithstanding, I think it's much better that uh, Mr. Qaddafi met his fate, a well-deserved fate, I would add, uh, without nuclear weapons than, than with nuclear weapons. I think it's really a hard argument to make that this was not a win for non-proliferation, that we picked up their program and we brought it back here, an illicit nuclear weapons program. And oh, by the way, 
the IAEA didn't have a clue about the, uh, about the uh, program in, in Libya. Not a clue. Uh, one of the reasons that the, and I certainly agree with the Senator, one of the reasons that Iran wants a nuclear weapon is because it wants to guard against outside intervention. So it continues to repress, brutally repress its own population. That is one of the reasons. There are other reasons to intimidate neighbors, to, you know, uh, to expand its influence in the region. There are a whole lot of reasons. I wouldn't list George Bush as one of them. Uh, Gary, uh, say more. Uh, uh, and I, uh, guy, uh, I just uh, totally disagree. If we could, that. I mean, that's, it's that's getting the wrong message to be sending. I will just say I, I, I do agree with the senator that, and that's why I oppose what we did in Libya, is I do think we taught folks a lesson, and that is if you give up nuclear arms, we're more likely to take you on than if you don't. And I think there was a learning moment there. And I do agree with Senator Markey's uh, comment in that regard. And I do think Iran has learned from that. And I think that uh, that is the reason they're pursuing a nuclear weapon today. Senator Sheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Albright, in your testimony, you talk about Congress ensuring that any new legislation includes provisions that would help to address, should we go forward with this agreement, that would address what, or look at strengthening the agreement, I guess is a better way to put it. I, I wonder if you could speak to what kind of legislation you think Congress should consider. Um, big picture legislation, I mean. Right. Yeah, well, I, I'm a, assuming the agreement goes forward. Um, in order to strengthen um, our position, the U.S. position with respect to the agreement and with respect to potential um, actions in the Middle East, what are measures that you think Congress should consider? For example, um, I was just in a hearing in the Armed Services Committee, and former Ambassador Edelman suggested that we should consider passing an AUMF on Iraq. That would be... I'm sorry, what is that? That Congress should pass an oh, AUMF. Oh, okay. Um, that would be a follow-on should Ar Iran decide not to comply with the agreement. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably challenging given that we've not been able to get agreement on an AUMF on ISIS, but what are other kinds of measures that you're suggesting we should be looking at? Yeah, and one, it's, it would be a standalone piece of legislation, and it's motivated by um, right. ratification understand. of arms control treaties. So, I, I mean, you want to lock in interpretations. Uh, you want to put the executive branch on notice that interpretations can't be changed without consultation with with, with Congress. I mean, a simple one um, provision would be that the PMD issue has to be addressed before U.S. sanctions come off. Um, you could put in language uh, for providing uh, support uh, through f monies and other means for the um, IA verification effort. You could put in language, well, I, I understand it's not popular, um, that, you know, that the, the deal does not um, in any way sanctify or approve, I mean, you could choose the language, um, a, a semi-commercial Iranian centrifuge program. Uh, you could put in language that instructs the U.S. To, nego to discuss with Iran, again, outside the deal, that it should not produce any more low-enriched uranium pending a need, and it, and it has no need. It has a 300 kilogram cap and absolutely no need to produce enriched uranium for many years. So you could put in uh, instructions to that effect. 
and and I and in my written testimony, I tried to put in right. more examples. Um, I, I think in most of the testimony that I've heard with respect to the agreement over the last over the last couple of weeks, people have suggested that if Iran violates the agreement, they would do it in an incremental way, which would make it more difficult. So they wouldn't do it in a way that would allow us to just um, recognize and snap back the sanctions. It would be incremental. And so it, it seems to me that if we're going to go forward with this agreement, it's very important that we have um, a variety of options for addressing any potential incremental violations of an agreement. And you're nodding, Dr. Seymour. What kinds of options should we be thinking about with respect to violations? So I think it's important, as I said earlier, to recognize that there are bound to be implementation issues. There are bound to be areas where uh, we think the Iranians have violated the agreement. There could even be ambiguous situations where the agreement is not clear. So I think it's important that we talk to the other P5 plus one to figure out how we're going to address a situation that's short of a major violation. I agree with you that at least in the beginning, it's not likely the Iranians would be so foolish as to make a major violation. And that means that we're, that'll be part of the implementation chore. There's enough, within the, there's enough flexibility within the four corners of the agreement to take a number of steps in terms of partial reimposition of sanctions, designating individuals and entities. So it's, you know, there's sufficient room in the agreement. What's needed is an actual you know, discussion among our allies as to how we would take advantage of that flexibility. Can I, can I add a few? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there's, uh, there's opportunities, for example, in the uh, procurement channel. You could, you, could, uh, you could take a position that if, let's say, Iran doesn't allow access within 24 hours, I mean, who cares about the 24 days? You would simply stop approving any exports to Iran. You would object to everything, in theory, or you could object to some things. You could, you could also stop the, or slow down the nuclear cooperation. There's a huge incentive package in, in this agreement on nuclear cooperation that covers incredible numbers of areas, and you could, you could slow that down. So I think you could create a, we call it a ladder of reactions, where the top rung may be snapback of sanctions, and I guess even higher would be military option. But there's a lot of rungs that you could fill out um, or build into this ladder. Um, Ambassador Joseph, did you want to add anything? Yes, Senator. I think that uh, you're right. I think the likelihood is that there will be an incremental uh, breakout, a series of step-by-step -step, uh, violations. Uh, there will be a lot of pressure uh, to explain away each of those. I mean, the Iranians are masters at this, and there will be a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure uh, to explain away the violation. So I think it's really quite important that there be a Team B, as I have suggested in my prepared statement, of outside experts, nonpartisan, with access to all of the intelligence, to assess Iranian uh, compliance with the agreement. And that is, that is something Congress can do. And I would just add that even though I fully agree that the likelihood is incrementalism, we can't rule out a, a, you know, a, a decision by the Supreme Leader to throw out the inspectors and to go for a nuclear weapon. Sure, We, no, saw, I, we I, saw that with North Korea. I, I understand that. I, I'm assuming that if that were the case, it would be very easy to figure out what our response would be. I, I don't think that's... 
that presents a difficult scenario for us. Well, Thank you all very much. Thank you. I know Senator Cardin had a, an additional comment. Well, I was just going to respond to some of the comments that have been made, and including our witnesses. The Congressional Review Act that we passed envisioned that Congress will be involved beyond just the review period. There is uh, requirements for the administration to provide us information, and there are various actions that we can take, and I think some of the comments that have been made today uh, build upon uh, the, the intent that uh, the drafters of this oversight legislation intended that there be an active role for Congress. Uh, moving forward, it's not to prejudge whether we take other action or not, and there's different views as to uh, whether Congress should uh, approve or disapprove the agreement. So there's, but there was always an envision that there would be a congressional role. In, in regards to the documents, I, I just really want to underscore this point. Senator Corker and I believe that we should review these documents. We said that from day one. Once the documents were received, within moments, we noticed that there were two documents missing that we wanted a, Congress to review. So we sent a letter to the administration almost immediately um, for those two documents, and we still believe, I still believe, I, I know Senator Corker agrees with me, that Congress should, should have eyes on those documents. But let me just put this in, in perspective, because we'll have the Director General here tomorrow. It deals with a part of the process that will be completed within a relatively short period of time, that is the uh, PMD review. And it's spelled out in a pretty specific time frame within the JCPOA. And, and Senator Corker is absolutely right. There is no direct relationship between the compliance with the uh, IAEA's report and sanction relief. So there is no direct tie to that. But I think it's envisioned that it'll be completed before the sanction relief will, will have matured, so that we will be able to know that before it's done. What concerns me, and that's the reason I raised this initially, which concerns me is the quality of the report we're going to get from the IAEA on December 15th. And if we don't have the adequate cooperation and access as represented in these annex documents, that's something we should know before we vote in the Congress of the United States. That's the reason why I think it's particularly important that we get more information. And I'm hoping that the Director General will shed some light on this tomorrow. Well, based on what we're, I'll just- Can I, can I add one thing? Yeah, real quick? Uh, uh, let me just say, oh, sorry. and you can, and thank you all for being here, but based on what we heard testimony about yesterday relative to some of the things that are occurring inside Iran as we speak and as we sit here uh, relative to uh, previous activities, it, it doesn't seem to me like we're going to get a particularly satisfying report. But go ahead, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Y'all go ahead and. Yeah, just uh, one thing I, I should have mentioned. I mean, your legislation was critical in our thinking about because you, without your legislation, then it, there's no base to build upon. So I'm, I apologize that I, I should have, I sh certainly should have emphasized that in what I said orally. Don't worry, we'll, we'll bring it up every yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, it was great legislation, great legislation. Mr. Chairman, I just wanted to make one point for clarification. Perhaps, and I think this is arguable, perhaps it was a mistake for the Obama administration in 2011 to intervene in, in Libya. Yeah. I'm not an expert on that. But I think, you know, I, I think there may be a strong case. 
I don't think that there's any case to suggest that we made the wrong decision in 2003 to take out Libya's nuclear weapons program. Right. I mean, that's, no. that's what this is all about. Right. We want to get rid of, we wanted to get rid of their nuclear program just like we want to get rid of Iran's nuclear weapons capability. This agreement doesn't do that. No, I think uh, what happened in 03 in Libya was an outstanding high mark, if you will, in ending proliferation. I think what we did in 11 did teach people that if you do away with your nuclear program, it's likely, uh, and you do things that the U.S. and our allies don't like, you're more likely to be invaded and taken out than if you have a nuclear program, which is why I think Iran is pursuing the nuclear program that they are. Do you want to say something, Gary? Well, I just want to say quickly, I share your view that the resolution of PMD is not going to be satisfactory, because I don't think Iran is prepared to truly, genuinely cooperate with the IAEA. That would require admitting the truth, right. that they had a nuclear weapons program before 2003, and I don't think they can do that, or they're not willing to do it. Well, listen, we have a great country because we have great citizens who, uh, you know, are very bright and learned and help us uh, make good decisions. And certainly y'all are three of the best examples of that. We thank you for being here. Uh, if it's okay with you, uh, the record will remain open till the close of Business Friday. If additional questions come in, if you could answer them fairly promptly, we would appreciate it. Thank you all for your service to our country, uh, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. We're adjourned. <laughs>